So we've talked a lot about greed and aversion and how these uh, experiences are the cause of suffering and the result of suffering, pushing away, holding on. And we've given whole talks about these tendencies because they're so predominant in our experience, easy to see, we can relate to them. We see these movements of mind so much in our practice. But we don't tend to talk quite as much about another aspect of experience that is in many ways more challenging than either of these two experiences that tends to be pretty much always present and yet very hard to see. And that is the factor of delusion. Delusion is one of the other, uh, of the kalesas, this list of greed, aversion, and delusion. Pali word is kalesa, uh, that often translated as torments of mind or poisons or even defilements. And the Pali word for delusion is moha. So it's loba, dosa, and moha, the three kalesas. And it's interesting that If you reflect on it, in some ways, ignorance or delusion is more fundamental than greed or aversion. Because if we saw clearly, we wouldn't be so greedy or aversive. We would understand the way things were. So it's interesting that the Buddha, when he described the second noble truth that I spoke about the other night, declared that the cause of suffering is tanha or craving another form of of greed, Um, instead of saying it was delusion. Yet in other places in the suttas, he does talk about the fundamental nature of ignorance or delusion in causing our suffering. And someone the other night, uh, when we were in the teacher room, said something like, delusion is not seeing that greed is the cause of suffering. And you can really see how interwoven delusion is in the expression of these other states of mind, of greed or aversion. So delusion, it's so common, yet so hard to see. Delusion is any time we're expecting things to be the way we want them to be, as opposed to the way they actually are. How often do you think that is in your experience? How often do we have these expectations or ideas about how things should be? How I should be, how you should be, what the experience should be, what the retreat should be like, what the retreat center should be like. And the other classic uh, form of delusion is taking this self to be solid, thinking there's something there that's permanent, that's me, that's I, that's mine. This is the other classic delusion. And how often do you think you do that? And it's endless, isn't it? I've been talking with people who are just seeing in their practice the self arising again and again in relation to this and pushing away that and I want and I don't want and I'm this and I'm that. And also, thankfully, seeing those times that that strong sense of self isn't there and what a relief that is. And just to be willing or interested enough, uh, have enough mindfulness to actually be using the note selfing, to see it's a process. It's a set of conditions that come together, and we take that to be self. When we see it with mindfulness, it's actually quite clear. 
you can see it come together. You can actually almost even see it come apart. But most of the time we don't see it. We're bought into the delusion, this illusion of self. Carol talked the other night about this Sakaya Ditti, this personality view, this construct. So this is our dilemma, that we're often lost in delusion, but how do we know we're lost in delusion if we're deluded? That's the very nature of the paradox. The very nature of delusion prevents us from knowing that it's present because we're deluded, we're confused. We don't know exactly how things are. So then the obvious question is, how do you become undeluded? And it's a bit like, I think I talked about this a few weeks ago um, in the talk on mindfulness. You know, when you're not mindful, what's the practice? Well, there really isn't one because you're not there. And it's, it's very simple. I mean, when we're not mindful, we're basically deluded some way or another. And so the same conundrum is there. If you're deluded, how do you become undeluded? Well, if I had the simple answer for you, again, we could all just go home. I'd just tell it to you. It's obviously more complex than that. But basically, just like mindfulness, more moments of clarity that we, clear, that we recognize is the best antidote to being deluded. And being willing to recognize the nature or the um, mind states that uh, convey delusion is how we get to come out of delusion. So it's this two-pronged approach, more clarity and really recognizing that with wisdom, with mindfulness, and then some understanding of what is the nature of delusion. What are the classic thoughts or beliefs that keep us deluded. And one of the other challenges about giving a talk on delusion is when do you stop collecting stories about delusion? Because, you know, read any newspaper, listen to anyone's story about what they did today, and you just see rife in that uh, is delusion. It's endless. It's always there unless we wake up. The source, I'm, one of the sources I'm going to use uh, tonight, I'm reading this book, which I, I am enjoying, that it has its challenges. Um, it's a book by Ajahn Suchito, who is one of the monks in the Amaravati uh, Ajahn Chah tradition. So he's an abbot in a monastery in England. Very wise man. I have enormous respect for him. Great teacher. But he did decide to do one thing that has uh, certain aspects of delusion in it. Um, which was to go on this long pilgrimage in India. And I think I mentioned I also went on a pilgrimage in India, and um, so I can appreciate what he was doing, except he decided to do this pilgrimage keeping a monastic schedule and on foot. Now, a monastic schedule means he doesn't eat afternoon. He basically tries to eat on dana, though he had a layperson with him who would buy some food. Um, every quarter moon to stay up all night and meditate. And then, the, the, I mean, the main thing is to do this on foot, to, to wander through India, uh, you know, supposedly as the Buddha did, but India's changed a lot in 2,500 years ago. 2,500 years is not quite as uh, pleasant and rural as it used to be. And so these two people set out. There was the, his, the lay person whose actually idea it was, this guy Nick, 
to go on pilgrimage. And the, the story is he just went to Ajahn Sumedho and said, I want to go on a pilgrimage and I want to walk. And Ajahn Sumedho said, Ajahn Sachito, why don't you go? And he did. <laughs> so they set off. You can't get maps of these kind of trails. They wanted to go through the backwoods. You know, they had just enormous, enormous challenges of getting lost and not speaking the language and wrong directions and getting sick. I mean, it's just endless. And having read this being on pilgrimage myself, you know, just reflected when I, whether I would get grouchy about India or how difficult it was. It's like everything pales in comparison to this. And just time and time again, these two, I mean, it's really like the odd couple. Ajahn Suchito is the classic renunciate, stoic, reserved, meditative. And Nick was, you know, again, a very intelligent man, but he was a wildlife fanatic or expert. And so he wanted to go see wildlife and nature. And Ajahn Sumedho just wanted to get where they were going as quickly as possible and meditate. And so time and time again, these clashing worldviews of well, how they should make decisions about where they should go. And they admitted themselves they were really like an old married couple, kind of bickering at each other. And you did this and you did that. It was your decision. No, you said, you know, endless, you know. And so at times, that's what I mean when it's a little challenging. It's like, oh, there's a lot of suffering in this. But one of the, where I'm up to at the moment, they've just gotten, I mean, all around India and gotten into Nepal um, and to Lumbini, which is the site of the, the Buddha's uh, birth and um, wanting to walk from there to Kathmandu. And Nick really wanted to go through the Chitwan Wildlife Preserve so they decided to do this. Ajahn Suchito agreed on foot. And I don't know if you know, I've been there because I've done a lot of travel in Asia. It's a tiger sanctuary. It's not just birds and, and <laughs> monkeys and stuff. But they decide to do it, and so they just cross a river and start walking into the sanctuary. The grass is 20 feet high. They're on these little trails. Someone where they just left insisted they take these two guides that were just these two young boys who didn't have a clue and they actually had to send away because they were hopeless. They were frightened and lost and didn't know what they were doing. And they just keep walking through this jungle. And I'm, you know, I'm reading this going, again, what were they thinking? You know, Nick is a wildlife expert. They knew this is a tiger sanctuary. Oh, I remember his, his theory was... They actually manage the park, so if a tiger becomes a man-eater, they get rid of it. So there won't be any man-eating tigers here in this park, so we should be safe. This is his protection. And then they go, you know, keep walking, and what they discover is not tigers, but rhinoceros. And I don't know if you heard, rhinoceros are actually more dangerous than tigers because they're very unpredictable, they don't see well, and they're easily startled, and they're huge. <laughs> So they see these rhinoceros, and I mean, what they say is, you know, you should back away quietly and go in the. And they're like, oh, rhinoceros. And they're walking up to them. And I mean, again, they survive, but you're just reading this going, didn't they read a little bit about what was going to be there? You know, what were, what were they thinking? They survived. I mean, and they, you know, this journey is just one thing after another of. They actually were nearly killed by bandits earlier on. They Both of them got sick a lot. It's just endless. So I just get this little quote from another incident. They, had, they did make it to Kathmandu. They survived. They made it to Kathmandu. Um, and there was a lot of interest in their journey and themselves in Kathmandu because it's a, a Buddhist. Uh, there is a lot of Buddhism in Kathmandu. So they were 
going to a lot of places and Ajahn Satito was giving talks um, and getting quite tired at times because a lot of people wanting attention. And so after this one talk, this journalist had showed up and really wanted to interview Ajahn Satito, but they wanted they needed to go somewhere else. So they just it was late at night and they needed to get somewhere, I forget where. So they just left where they were, and the journalist didn't give up. He just stayed asking questions as they left. So this is just this little scenario where there's, I guess, Ajahn Sachito, Nick, and whoever is taking them somewhere, and this journalist. Then suddenly we plunged off into the maze of downtown Kathmandu. There was a blackout. There was a huge fire glowing in the distance, and the sirens and horns of emergency vehicles were adding to the chaos. In the darkness, it was difficult to see where we were going. Then the lights of a car would be coming towards us and we'd have to scatter and dodge to avoid it. But the reporter was keen. He stayed right with me, asking questions about Buddhism as we jogged along. Where, when was this going to end, I thought. Eventually, I was throwing him answers that were getting more and more curt and direct about the need to base Buddhism on awareness in the present moment, which was in darkness and sirens and flashing headlights and with danger and irritation and trying to talk sense. Then something came home. It was always like that. Wanting to get away from chaos, in other words, anything that deviated from my own attitudes, interests, and responses was the real problem. But the world was always going to be other than my attitudes and responses. And so with great humor, the struggling stopped, and that endless journey through so many people found its own center. And that was just, again, a little t turning that happened to get throughout this book where he would stop struggling, stop trying to make it other than it actually was. The world was always going to be like that always presenting us with chaos and not being as we wished. And when we struggle with that, it's suffering. When we turn towards it and see it, this is actually the way to freedom. So delusion happens when we're out of touch in that way. When we're lost, we're disconnected, we're in denial, we're confused. When we're somehow not really here, not really present. And you can see how the kalesas that I spoke about are just strategies to try to avoid suffering that actually cause suffering. So greed tries to hold on, aversion pushes away, and delusion denies or avoids, withdraws a little from experience, doesn't connect. I've heard one definition of delusion is doing the same thing and expecting a different result. You know that one? So it's important to work with this, to bring more clarity to this state of delusion or ignorance because how else can wisdom come in? If delusion reigns, then how can wisdom come in? And it's also said that the wholesome states can't arise if the kalesas are present. So we need to work with this. The challenge is the nature of delusion as a kind of chameleon. It's that little lizard that changes its color to match what it's on, you can see how greed and aversion are fairly clear. You know, we can feel them. The, the aversion is usually painful. The greed perhaps has its pleasantness, but if we're really attentive, we can see the way it causes suffering. Delusion loses itself 
or masquerades or manifests as all of these other mind states, kind of supporting them in some way and expressing itself through them. And so that's the challenge. Often we're aware of what we think is happening and what's underneath is this chaos of delusion, this misunderstanding the way things are. There's a great text I think we've referred to a couple of times called the Vasudhimaga. Translation is the path of purification written by Buddhaghosa in the 5th century. And it's this huge thick book that's a manual or a compendium of all of these different Buddhist teachings and practices. It really has all this amazing information in it. And one of the things that Buddhaghosa talks about is um, how that the three kalesas express themselves through what he calls the three character types. And he says that as individuals, each one of us tends to, has a tendency towards manifesting more often one of the kalesas. So there can be a greedy type, an aversive type, or a deluded type. And it's a very, very uh, simple psychology. You know, it's not 21st century Western psychology and all of its nuance and depth. But there's a, in its very simplicity, it actually can be quite helpful um, just to understand how our mind works and how others' minds works. And what we have to recognize as we talk about this is, you know, it's not something to land in and create another self around, you know, I'm this way, you're that way, but to actually use it to help us understand uh, this, this, this conditioning. And I heard someone, I think it might have been James actually, say when we were talking about the, the character types that you can tell what type of person they are by how they respond to hearing about the character types, especially if this is new for you. The aversive types is something like, I hate these types. They really limit me. I don't like hearing about them. And the greedy type says, I want to learn more about this. This is really interesting. You know, how can I figure this out and, and really get on top of this. And the deluded type is, what type am I? <laughs> no, what's happening here? So again, just to use it if, if it's helpful or if it opens something up for you. But for me, it, it did bring some clarity in or some understanding in to both understand my own mind, but also as I'm working and interacting with people, just to see these kind of tendencies and to, it's, it depersonalizes things a little. It's, it's like, oh, they're not doing that just to be annoying. It's just that they're, uh, you know, an aversive type or a greedy type or a deluded type and can understand, you know, how the dynamic between people might work differently depending on which type is, is present. Now, the reason that these types are in this manual of Buddhist practice and meditation is that Buddha Gosa said, dependent on what type you are, uh, you can determine what type of meditation, practice, and situation you should have. And I also always feel in reading this that Buddha Gosa must have been a greed type because they always get the best press. Um, so I'll read you a little bit. You know, this goes on for pages. I'll just read some little excerpts from this about how you're supposedly meant to distinguish the types. So, um, and it, he goes into all kinds of things about your posture, how you eat your food, how you sweep, how you sleep, how you meditate. So this is just a little excerpt. Greedy, the greedy temperament walks carefully, puts his foot down slowly, puts, uh, puts his foot down slowly, puts it down evenly, lifts it up even, evenly, and his step is springy. Aversive temperament 
walks as though she were digging with the points of her feet, puts her foot down quickly, lifts it up quickly, and her step is dragged along. The deluded type walks with a perplexed gait, puts his foot down hesitantly, lifts it up hesitantly, and his step is pressed down suddenly. The stance of a greedy type is confident and graceful. That of an aversive is rigid. That of a deluded is muddled. Likewise in sitting, the greedy type spreads her bed unhurriedly, lies down slowly, composing her limbs, and sleeps in a confident manner. When woken, instead of getting up quickly, she gives her answer as though doubtful. Aversive type spreads his bed hastily anyhow. With his body flung down, he sleeps with a scowl. When woken, he gets up quickly and answers as though annoyed. The deluded type spreads her bed all awry and sleeps mostly face downwards with her body (laughs) sprawling. When woken, she gets up slowly saying, hmm? (laughs) So I don't know if that's helpful, but that's what it says there. Um, But the basic thing you want to check out to see if you're still unsure which type you are is your reaction when you're confronted with new situations. Do you look for what you like? Do you just instantly notice what you don't like? Or do you not have a clue that you're even in a new situation, basically? (laughs) Do you know know, that you're even there? So it's that basic tendency of, of wanting to hold on, push away, or not connecting. You can see that playing out. Now, the payback in this book, this practice manual, the greed types get it in the end, um, is that to balance these tendencies of mind, each of the types should have different meditation situations. So for the greedy type, the meditation hut or room should be a decrepit shack (laughs) splattered with dirt, full of bats, bleak, threatened by lions and tigers, bed and chair are full of bugs. Garments should have torn off edges with threads hanging down, harsh to the touch, soiled and hard to wear. So sorry about that, (laughs) types. The aversive type, however, should have a hut that's well-proportioned, brightened with various kinds of paintings, adorned with flowers, a canopy of colored cloth, pretty, sweet-smelling, makes one happy and glad at the mere sight of it, and the clothing should be of the finest cloth. So basically, it's to balance the tendencies, you know, if you, to, to help the mind stay in balance. And it's interesting for the deluded type. The deluded type needs a place with a view, not shut in, for her mind becomes confused in a confined space. And it should also be beautiful, like it should be for the aversive. And I, I have a good friend who's a very intelligent person who's a uh, deluded type, and she said that's really true for her. If, she, if her place, space is cluttered, it really affects her mind. So she needs a lot of space and openness in her environment. So maybe you'll go and readjust your room when you get back to see if you need some balancing happening there. So as I said earlier, it's not about identifying. It's not to create another self. Oh, I'm an aversive type or you're a deluded type. It's not about that. And, and to really see that at any one time, any of those tendencies could be expressing themselves. We all have each of them. And depending on our conditions and, and our, our, our mental states, different aspects could be greater or lesser in predominance. But it is interesting to just kind of depersonalize 
um, these tendencies of mind, this conditioned responses that we have, to say, oh, that's, that's aversion, rather than I'm aversive, that's aversion showing up, and, and to kind of recognize it more clearly. When I first heard about these character types, I was quite sure that I was a deluded type, that, um, you know, I looked at my experience, I thought, you know, I, I don't have strong opinions, I have quite a bit of equanimity, I, I don't like to get into arguments, I don't, I don't like to be confrontational with people, I didn't feel I was very clear. But my dear friends, many of whom are here up with me, have convinced me that that is not the case, that I'm actually an aversive type. And it took a while to um, adjust to that shift in how I related to myself. Um, but I had to recognize, yes, there is a good deal of aversion in my temperament. But it's been helpful. Instead of deluding myself that I was deluded, I can actually see you know, that aversion can be a response that I have kind of um, without thinking about it. And again, you know, it's not aversion as in anger or, or being harsh, but just a kind of no or an unwillingness to open to new ideas or new possibilities. And so I've really taken that up as a mindfulness practice to see, you know, when I'm in a new situation or in a meeting where ideas are being discussed, if I find myself just looking for why things won't work or what's wrong, to just take a moment and sit with more of a sense of possibility and uh, openness to um, what's being offered rather than just closing down. And it's helped me to be more spacious about other people's types. Again, just seeing that pattern uh, playing out rather than getting um, offended or um, uh, reactive to what's happening. And also to recognize that each of these types has a positive aspect to it and that, that there can be wisdom showing through through each of these types. And so the greedy type tends to be very generous and loving beauty and, and, and fun to be around. They have a strong faith temperament. So it can be really good to, you know, if you want someone to arrange your party, that's who you go to, the, the greed type. The aversive types are willing to name what's difficult, to be clear about what, where the suffering is in, a, in an individual or in a situation. And they're who you go to for advice. You know, that's, you want that clarity, or if you want something done, that's who you go to, to the aversive types. And the deluded types, um, strength is equanimity. They're not easily agitated or reactive. Great to travel with. You know, you get to the hotel and you say, which bed do you want? They go, oh, I don't mind. Okay, I'll take the one by the window with the light. And <laughs> Okay, that's fine. So, you know, wonderful travel companions. And those experiences come through uh, in all of us. The Buddha, when he talked about the classic forms of the way delusion expresses himself, talked about a list he called the Whippalasas. And these are these four basic movements of the mind that are deluded. The first is taking what's impermanent to be permanent. Ever done that? Our experiences, our, our, our thoughts, our practice, even the retreat, you know, how often you said this is the way things are and this is terrible or this is the way things are and it's great, I want it to stay. You know, the retreat itself goes through these times of just seeing solid and impenetrable and then at other times going so quickly. 
taking what's inherently unsatisfactory, dukkha, to be a source of satisfaction. Again, to think that somewhere out there is an object or a person or experience that's going to make me happy. It's a classic delusion. Taking what is without a self to constitute a self. Talked a little bit already. To think, think this, there's something solid here, it's permanent. To identify with I, me, and mine. I am the body, this, these are my thoughts, whatever way we do that. And then the last one is seeing the unlovely, asuba, as lovely. This is a whole uh, practice in Buddhism of working with the tendency we have to attach to outer form, our bodies, other people's bodies, and cling to them, or even objects, and see them as a source of happiness. So a lot of practices that work around that. You might have recognized the first three. They were basically distortions or delusions around the three characteristics. Not clearly seeing impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self as being actually the way things are. So the whippalasas are the distortions of that. And then the last is really looking at the way we grasp onto things and try to find happiness through them. So these are the classic forms of delusion that play out all of these different ways either on very, very subtle and refined levels or really gross, you know, grabbing hold, trying to, to make things be the way they want them to be. So this happens when we're in this deluded state. We don't see clearly. We're in the fog, we're disconnected, we don't know what we're feeling or experiencing. It doesn't mean we're not intelligent. It's not talking about that kind of functioning of mind. It's some basic disconnect or misunderstanding about the way things are and just not kind of tracking our experience or being clear enough about what's happening to respond appropriately. So it can be really simple little things. I was at the movies just the other day with some friends who shall remain nameless. And when we came out, one of them realized that the whole time they had had their prescription sunglasses on. (laughs) And we kind of looked and said, you didn't notice? She said, well, it seemed kind of dark. (laughs) But I thought it was just the movie. You know, it's just things like that. Nameless, shall remain nameless. (laughs) To explore this, uh, I think I've mentioned before, I lead a program called Dedicated Practitioners Program at uh, Spirit Rock, where we, um, it's a two-year program, and the retreats are interactive, and they're very lively. We really try to bring uh, the practice and the teachings alive. And when we do the retreat on the Kalesas, uh, exploring them. One of the things we do is have what we call p- panels. We've taken this from the Enneagram, if you know that thing, where there are character types and you get self, self-identified representatives of the different character types to step forward and then we interview them and just see it's how they view the world, what their relationship to the world is. So we did this at this one retreat and you know, did a greed panel and an aversion panel and then we did a deluded panel. And it was just interesting with the 
deluded people. You know, you see it's not individual. There's this whole range of how people manifest, and yet their underlying or basic responses to things were the same. So we'd say, how do you go about shopping? And they all kind of squirmed and said, I hate shopping. You know, I can't go shopping. You know, I, I get confused, I get lost, I need a list. If I don't have a list, I'm lost. You know, I have to rush in and rush out. Or I, if I go in without a list, I'm lost, and I come out with all this stuff I didn't want. It's just, you know, they, they've just seen that this is the way they relate to the world. And there was one uh, man on one of these panels we did who I know is the leader of a huge organization, like a very challenging job with a lot of responsibility. And he actually talked about the fact that um, being a deluded type helped him because when things, dramatic things happened, and in this business, very dramatic things could happen, because he wasn't quite in touch with his feelings, he could actually really respond with what needed to happen. And everyone else was in a panic. And he could be very quietly and efficiently responding and, and taking care of the situation. And it was only afterwards it would catch up with him and he would feel the impact of what he had been through. So it can be very helpful. He also talked about how he related to shopping. He said, um, you know, a lot of people often compliment me on my clothes, but I can't take much uh, credit for it because I realized the only way I could get dressed for work was to have a personal shopper. So I, I go to one of these big department stores and I have my personal shopper and she says, now buy this, this, and this, and put this shirt together with this tie and wear this, you know, for this long, you know. And so I hang these clothes up in my cupboard like this, and I just take out this outfit and I put it on, and it works. He said, I don't have a clue, but <laughs> it basically, you know, people compliment me on it, it works. And so every now and then I just go and she tells me what to wear, and uh, that's what I do, and that's how I deal with the shopping thing. And we went on a little, and then he got the microphone back again. He said, you know, I have to addend my story a little. He said, I don't think or about, you know, that I need to go shopping. She calls me and says, you know, you need to go shopping. <laughs> you know, you need some. And, you know, that's how it is for him. So it's, this is delusion operating. So uh, as, as I said earlier, we can know that delusion is operating when we hold on to how we want things to be rather than how they actually are. This is the telltale hallmark. I read that the Talmud, that book of Jewish wisdom, says that we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. We don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. And what it's pointing to is how our conditioning influences how we take in the world, our responses to the world and to our inner experience. We try to make reality fit our understanding of the world, our idea of how things should be. Another story, um, I, when I come here, to, well, mo all the time I like to go hiking in nature, and when I come here, you know, I, I don't live here, so a lot of this area is new to me, so I like to find new places to go hiking, and I've accumulated, you know, different trails from the internet, or I got a guidebook, a little local guidebook of places to go, and I, again, took a few people who are sitting here with me. I'm usually the leader of saying, let's go here or there, and I had my little guidebook, and we all set out on this hike. And I always find that the hardest part of a hike is the beginning, isn't it? Finding the trailhead and making sure you're on the right trail. 
So, you know, the guidebook said, go hunt 500 yards or however, and then the trail should go right, and then you'll see this and that. So we're trudging along, and it seems longer than 500 yards, but, you know, we're still hoping we're on the right trail. And then the trail veers a little to the right. It's like, well, maybe this is what they were talking about. We keep walking and walking, and then it says, well, you know, and to the right you should see a pine forest, and the left you should see a some swamp. And we're kind of, well, there's a pine tree. <laughs> and it's a little damp over there. We must be on the right trail. And I really saw in this that I hate, you know, one, admitting I'm wrong, and two, going back. So I kept wanting to make the reality, what we were seeing, match what it says in the book. You ever done that? And the longer we went, I finally had to admit we were perhaps on the wrong trail, but then I really wanted to imagine that this trail would loop around and we'd still come back to where we wanted to be. Uh, and, you know, luckily, wiser heads prevailed, and at some point we turned around. And when I looked on the map, I mean, we had, you know, like veered off and gone in completely the wrong direction out of this insistence that, you know, re you know reality match what I wanted it to be. It's endless. I often turn to a little a newspaper column called New News of the Weird for stories about this. You know, that is just all these examples this guy collects from the newspaper. But I've done that a number of times. So this time I went to the Darwin Awards. You know, that that's a, I don't know who it is, a group of people who every year select some story from the news. And it's called the Darwin Awards because basically they're improving the gene pool. They're so crazy that they kill themselves in these adventures. Most of them are too gruesome to tell. So I, I chose one that wasn't uh, like that, but it still, it came third in 2009. So this is from a Darwin Award. It actually doesn't improve the gene pool, so it's not that, but it's, it's still funny. After stopping for drinks in an illegal bar, a Zimbabwean bus driver found that the 20 mental patients he was supposed to be transporting from Harare to Bulawayo had escaped. Not wanting to admit his incompetence, the driver went to a nearby bus stop and offered everyone waiting there a free ride. <laughs> He then delivered the passengers to the mental hospital, <laughs> telling the staff that the patients were very excitable and prone to bizarre fantasies. <laughs> the deception wasn't discovered for three days. You might feel that's kind of happened here. You know, I'm not meant to be here. <laughs> Let me go home. Not wanting to admit you're wrong, it gets you into trouble. Gets other people into trouble too. So we want to believe our view of the world against all the information that's coming in that says it's perhaps not so. We want to believe our views and opinion. We cling to them as a refuge or a form of safety and we only let in information that supports them and we deliberately push away, don't see the information that is the opposite. Again, a classic is knowing, a, it's a bit like Arjun Cicito, knowing a situation might be problematic, but you know, what could go wrong? It's the other, you know, what, how hard could it be? It'll be okay. I, I, I have a, another example from my own history. Um, this is many, many, many years ago. When I left Australia, I lived and traveled in Asia a lot and did a lot of trekking. 
and at one point um, was joined up by a boyfriend who I had left behind but came to join me, who was very much wanting, you know, the real trekking experience, you know, out there on the edge kind of thing. And so we did this, decided to do this trek that at the time had just opened up maybe the year before, so it wasn't all established like some of the routes you can go on. Um, it was Manang Muktanath. It's a long trek, many, many weeks, at the top of which you go over an 18,500-foot pass. And we wanted to do it on the cheap. We didn't hire anyone. And he had brought, I didn't have much, any equipment, and he had brought minimal. He brought a one-person tent and a little cook stove, and that's what we had. And so we set out from Pokhara with this minimal equipment, and we, decided, we, we did realize we needed to rent some warmer clothes. You can rent down jackets. But because we wanted to do it cheaply, we wanted to rent in the furthest possible location because town prices are more expensive. Let's go where it's cheaper. What we hadn't factored in was the deposit you had to pay to rent the down jacket. So we get all the way out, you know, bus ride or whatever, start walking, get to this little place. Takes up nearly all of our money, uh, you know, and we kind of think we're short, but, you know, you don't stop to think how much is that a day that we have left as we head out into the wilderness. So, again, not wanting to face up to reality. We could have turned back and changed some money. No, we keep going. So there we are, minimal equipment, not much money, heading on, on a track that not many people go on. What could go wrong? <laughs> of course, you know, we both got sick at different times. We stumbled on, we got lost, we found our trail. You know, we just kept going. And so three weeks, it was an amazing experience. You know, we stayed outdoors some nights, um, camping in this little tent where one of us would have to get in and lie like this and the other one would squeeze in. To, to be, be beside them, you know, there were wild animals around. We did survive all that. But then we got to the base of where you had to go over this 18 and, no, 17,500-foot peak uh, pass. And you went from this little town that was probably about 10,000 feet. We stayed there for a couple of days to acclimatize. And then the idea is you walk up to 12,000 feet, edge of the snow line, camp overnight, get up at 3 a.m., and head up over this pass before uh, the snow melts, starts to get soft. Well, as we were at this camp, it was freezing cold. We didn't have much stuff, but there we were. My boyfriend, Clive, started to show signs of altitude sickness, a little bit of delirium. You know, he's usually really on top of things. He was just out of it. So this is a little worrying. <laughs> he is not in a state to be making decisions, and I'm there with this, you know, idea that tomorrow we could go over this pass. It would be very difficult. But on the other side was Jompson. For those of you that have tracked, that's the classic route that's full. And, you know, people have been talking about all of the restaurants that are over there and the hot showers. And we'd had nothing. We'd been living on dal bark for three, rice and vegetables, with dal and vegetables for three weeks. Gotten sick and eh, there's a long, long way to get here. So there's my decision. Altitude sickness, hot shower, and apple pie. <laughs> I still can't believe it. I got, somehow I got him dressed in the morning, and I pushed him over that pass. I mean, he was hanging on to my shirt. I was pushing him. I, he survived, but I mean, no thanks to me, you know, because I couldn't face the possibility of turning around and going down. And, and the, you know, the idea is, it'll be okay. You know what? I didn't quite think what could go wrong because I kind of knew what could go wrong. But just that sense 
of not wanting to turn around, not taking in the information that was there. And we find ourselves in these situations not willing to admit what's actually the truth of where we are and what's happening. He forgave me because he survived. And another, you know, so many scenarios we got into trouble. And I saved his life a couple of times. So, you know, I kind of made it up to him. But it's just so interesting as I reflect back what that mind state was that kind of weighed these two things and said, no, let's go on here. Let's, let's charge through this. When I was talking about this um, delusion and telling that story in the staff room back at Spirit Rock, you know, a group of staff people were there. So we all shared our stories. And another uh, woman who was there said uh, many years ago she was in London and wanting to work there. And so just any job she could. And the job she really wanted was this job as a nanny. And the only requirement was, apart from liking children, being able to take care of them, was that she could drive. So she said, of course I can drive. Well, yes, she could drive in America on the right-hand side of the road uh, with an automatic car. This was the left-hand side of the road in a stick shift in London, which if you've ever been there is full of roundabouts and one-way streets and the most horrendous traffic you've ever seen. And she said, she said, she had the thought, how hard could it be? So the first morning, you know, the woman says, please go off and take the kids to school or pick them up or whatever, and she gets out in this car. And of course, she has no idea. She's grinding the gears, and she's lurching along, and, you know, smoke is coming out of the car. And she's like, ah! And she said, luckily, this man, this classic English gentleman in a bowler hat and a briefcase, jumped in the car and took over and kind of took her to where she wanted to go and taught her how to drive. But, you know, how hard could it be you know, to drive in London? So we do this. We do this. We take the information and make it what we want it to be. Here on retreat, you're not driving in London or trekking in Nepal, but how many states of delusion have you lived under? The classic things, we've talked about yogi mind. I mean, that's classic states of delusion. VRs and VVs. You know those? Vipassana romance, Vipassana vendetta. Where the romance, there's someone here and they just represent all that's good and right and true in the world. You know, they're your soulmate. They're who you are meant to be with. And there's this whole story about how, you know, their journey and your journey and come together and the end of the retreat. And it's all in your head. It's all in your head. And, you know, you can get connected and married and divorced and, you know, have children and you never, don't even know their name. And we can live in this fantasy or Vipassana Vendetta where there's one person who is the epitome of everything that's wrong with the retreat, the noisiness or the unmindfulness or the, the you know, messiness or whatever it is. And you just feel the energy telling this story about this person and only taking in what feeds that story. Do you see how we do that again and again? Another classic way delusion gets perpetuated is through doubt. When we're questioning, you know, what about this practice? What about that practice? Should I, you know, what, do this or do that? And we just get lost in telling ourselves stories about how it should be or how it shouldn't be to really see how doubt is a delusion factory. We just get lost in our stories or ideas about things. And you could see that b- 
basically all judging, inner or outer, are forms of delusion. Because we're making a story about how things are that's not based on reality or doesn't see the conditioned nature or the, all of the factors that are at play. Another area that delusion can really um, manifest is when things are neutral. We talked about Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Well, pleasant, unpleasant, we kind of know that terrain. It calls our attention. But neutral is where we space out, where we get lost in the subtlety of experience. But we can often see when we're not strongly caught in greed or aversion, the delusion actually ends up running the show. We get lost in our stories about things. And we can almost have an idea that if there's not some drama going on, that practice isn't happening. So we deliberately either stir things up or go into fantasy, tell a story about something, whip things up a little, can see how we do this, that when things get a little calm, when they're in this more neutral terrain, the mind doesn't like it. We're so used to the agitation or the wanting uh, that we don't stay connected. So when uh, we have these experiences, we think of them as being boring. We're not interested. And so delusion can then kind of take over. And so part of the training to work with delusion is to stay clearly connected when things get calm and quiet, to actually investigate these kinds of experiences. We've talked about this already, that it's not actually a lack of something happening and and wrong or boring. This might be an experience of calm. This might be an experience of equanimity or tranquility or peacefulness. It could even possibly be contentment. And this is, I've talked to a few people about this. This is such a, again, unknown experience to us. Can we really trust being content with how things are? To be knowing experience clearly, have it not be dramatically one thing or another, but just this quiet contentment. If we can trust that, understand and know that, delusion doesn't have so much a way in. We're connected to this simple experience of calm or quiet and contentment. Ajahn Sumedho, when he talks about this, says, if you start with avidya, that's delusion or ignorance, you'll always end up in suffering. And basically, he's just shorthand for the wheel of dependent origination that we've talked about a little bit. The beginning is ignorance, the ending is suffering. It goes through those are the ten links. If you start with ignorance, you'll end up in suffering. But he says, if you start with wisdom, then you'll end up in freedom or happiness. He says, I encourage you to start not from avidya, ignorance, but from awareness, vidya, and wisdom, panya. Be that wisdom itself, rather than a person who isn't wise trying to become wise. As long as you hold to the view that I'm not wise yet, but I hope to become wise, you'll end up with grief, 
sorrow, despair, and anguish. It's that direct. It's learning to trust in being the wisdom now, being awake, even though you may feel emotionally inadequate, doubtful or uncertain, frightened or terrified of it. It's quite a radical statement. Trust in being the wisdom now, being awake, even though you may feel emotionally inadequate, doubtful or uncertain. How can we do that? How can we trust the wisdom now? This really is our practice. Whether you call it wisdom or just mindfulness, knowing what's true here and now to the best we're able. So this training that we're doing of connecting again and again to what's happening on all of these different levels, gross and subtle, mind and body, this is the best practice to diminish delusion and the tendency towards delusion is to know our experience in this direct and immediate way with clarity and with confidence. This is what's happening. This is what I know. And then we see that it's not the experience that has to change. We can still have whatever's coming and going, but our relationship to it does. We're not so caught. We're not so identified. We're not believing our views and opinions. We're not trusting that judging voice that says, I'm not good enough, or it's not good enough, or it's not okay. We're seeing through those tendencies of mind that lead to suffering. So it's really a lot about seeing what causes us suffering and seeing what brings happiness or peace or freedom. And so it's a lot about learning to trust ourselves The classic expression of delusion is not trusting. The voice of Mara that pushes us off our seat and says, you don't know. This is what Ajahn Sumedho is talking about. You don't know. You don't understand. To start to trust that we can know, that we do know. Not in some extravagant, you know, completely enlightened way, but just knowing or trusting this moment, this experience. So it's about waking up. Not being in a fog or lost, but wake up. It's why it's called enlightenment. Turn the light on, wake up, bring clarity. And so it's possible any moment that we meet our experience directly without the filters, without the projection, without identifying with I, me, or mine, and just knowing it for what it is as it is. Even if the experience is challenging, even if we see you know, we, we want to hold on, or we want to push away, or that's we, we, so comforting to grasp and say, I know, you know, that it's bad or right or wrong. To just come to more this inner knowing that doesn't grasp or push away, but opens to. This is from Ajahn Chah, that wonderful book, Still Forest Pool. As I see it, the mind is like a single point, the center of the universe and mental states are like visitors who come to stay at this point for short or long periods of time. Get to know these visitors well. Become familiar with the vivid pictures they paint, the alluring stories they tell, to entice you to follow them. But do not give up your seat. It is the only chair around. If you continue to occupy it unceasingly, greeting each guest as it comes, 
firmly establishing yourself in awareness, transforming your mind into the one who knows, the one who is awake, the visitors will eventually stop coming back. If you give them real attention, how many times can these visitors return? Speak with them here and you will know every one of them well. Then your mind will at last be at peace. He's saying, take this seat. Not the one in a week from now or the sitting you had that was so great, but this seat, here and now, it's the only one around. And trust the wakefulness that's here and accessible in the here and the now. Let's just sit in this seat, in the here and now for a moment. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.